Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. President Biden pardoning people convicted of simple possession of marijuana at the federal level. Some say it's long overdue, while others question the timing so close to the midterms. A battle in the desert heat as two Arizona candidates compete for a U.S. Senate spot in the upcoming midterm elections. Alleged ballot harvesting in Texas, a man says he was paid by a county judge candidate to collect and submit absentee ballots fraudulently. President Biden said that Hurricane Ian is proof of climate change. This contradicts what the nation's top hurricane expert says about the storm. New York City Mayor Eric Adams has declared a state of emergency. He said thousands of asylum seekers have been bussed into New York City and dropped off without coordination or care, and more are arriving every day. The mayor said that one in five people in New York's homeless shelters is an immigrant. The mayor estimates the cost of the influx could reach a billion dollars by year's end. For several months, Texas and Arizona have been busing illegal immigrants to New York City and Washington, D.C. to relieve the pressure on their border communities. And as frustration over the southern border grows, an author says he's hearing talk of people taking things into their own hands. In a recent article, he exposes the dangerous vigilante sentiment. Joining me now is Todd Benzman, Senior National Security Fellow with the Center for Immigration Studies. He's also the author of America's Covert Border War, the untold story of the nation's battle to prevent jihadist infiltration. Great to have you on the show again, Todd. Good to be here. You recently wrote an article alleging that the Biden administration is refusing to enforce the border and therefore dangerous vigilante sentiment is growing. Can you explain more about this phenomenon? Right. Well, first of all, the Biden administration put in place policies on day one that caused this mass migration crisis, the greatest in U.S. history, more people crossing that border than ever before in a single year and a single two years. And People who live here in Texas are growing increasingly frustrated, especially with the fact that Greg Abbott, the governor here, has seemed to be unable to stop it either. And I have been hearing for several months now uh, people talk about bringing guns down to the border and killing immigrants. And so have other speakers and people uh, who are in the community of advocates for border security here in Texas. Uh, hearing a fairly widespread, it sounds widespread, of, of, of an extremism. Uh, and my column calls this out uh, and condemns this. I think that, that we all need to uh, take a deep breath, find out who among us is thinking about doing this, and turn them in and condemn it. Make sure that that is not, that is not an acceptable way to approach the border crisis at all. In fact, it's counterproductive. But worse, we don't want to see immigrants being shot by vigilantes. That's murder. I mean, how widespread is this? Is it a few people we're talking about, or is this like groups of people in many towns? It's hard to say, but there was an incident in Hudspeth County, Texas, where two locals took out a shotgun and murdered an immigrant by the side of the road and, and critically injured another one. And so I thought now was a good time to bring this to light and, and talk about it, that, that there is an extremism afoot. And Hudsmith, you're talking about about 100 miles east of El Paso when about a dozen migrants had crossed the U.S. border illegally and someone in a pickup truck, according to DPS, fired two rounds, killing one man and injuring a woman. So do you think this is a result of these communities being torn apart by the influx or is there some other reason for this? There's no doubt that people are incredibly frustrated and angry here in Texas. I, I encounter that anger all the time. I mean, it is really visceral. Uh, I, I haven't seen anything like this in a while. There is true anger over the, the inability of the Abbott administration here in Texas to stop this, and especially by the Biden administration's policy that has fomented this whole thing and they won't do anything at all to stop it. That's not their policy is to usher in millions of people. It's literally policy. Uh, so, so people are really furious. Everywhere down there, everybody is packing weapons for self-defense. 
That's different than what looks to have happened in Hudspeth County. Well, Todd, thank you so much for bringing this issue to light. And I hear you have a book coming out soon. Can you explain more about it? Sure. The book is uh, being published by Post Hill Press, Bombardier Books. It's called Overrun, How Joe Biden Unleashed the Greatest Border Crisis in U.S. History. And it is a first documentation of this historic mass migration crisis, what caused it, uh, the politics that created it, the policies that created it, tracing it directly to Inauguration Day, why that happened, uh, and the impacts that it will have, uh, the transformative permanent impacts on America for, for you know, the future. We're not going to we're not getting out of this. This is going to be a permanent change for the country. So time to write a book about that. The border continues to be a big issue. Todd Benzman, Senior National Security Fellow with the Center for Immigration Studies. Great to have you on today. Thank you. President Biden is pardoning thousands of Americans convicted of simple possession of marijuana under federal law. And today's Jessica Beatty has more on the president's move, which comes weeks ahead of the midterms. President Biden Thursday said he's pardoning everyone convicted of possessing marijuana on the federal level and in the District of Columbia. There are thousands of people who are convicted for marijuana possession who may be denied employment, housing, or educational opportunities as a result of that conviction. My pardon will remove this burden on them. The pardon does not apply to non-citizens or to trafficking marijuana or distributing it. Simple marijuana possession is a misdemeanor that can land a person up to one year in jail on the first offense and more time for added offenses. Too many lives have been upended because of our failed approach to marijuana. It's time that we right these wrongs. Biden's encouraging governors to pardon people for state offenses too. And he's ordering a review of whether marijuana should be a Schedule I narcotic, the highest classification. The Controlled Substance Act classified it that way in 1970. That means on the books, marijuana is the equivalent of heroin, has no medical use, is highly addictive, and worse than cocaine or methamphetamine. But most states now permit marijuana use for health reasons. And 19 states in Washington, D.C. allow recreational use for those over 21. Despite growing acceptance, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration warns that marijuana today is stronger than ever before, and there are real risks to using it, including addiction, IQ loss, mental health, athletic performance, and lower career achievement. Some say Biden's steps are long overdue and a way for the president to keep a campaign promise, but others question the timing of the pardon. The announcement comes about a month before the midterms and right after OPEC Plus announced oil production cuts starting in November. Those could increase U.S. gas prices and hurt the broader economy and hurt Democrat candidates in the midterms. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Democrat Senator Mark Kelly clashed with challenger Blake Masters over abortion and immigration, among other issues yesterday. This ahead of the November 8th U.S. midterm elections. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more. The debate gave viewers perhaps their only opportunity to see the candidates face off against each other. On inflation, Masters had this to say. The cost of groceries, actually the cost of everything you need to live, keeps going up and up. Kelly concurred that Americans are facing challenges. Families are struggling and often can't afford gas or prescription medication. But says he has worked with Republicans to bring manufacturing back to America to cut costs. However, Masters continued and laid the blame on the shoulders of the Biden administration and Democrats like Senator Kelly. Let's be clear, the greatest threat to seniors' retirement today is the massive, crushing inflation that Joe Biden and Mark Kelly caused. Masters pointed out that inflation was 1.5 percent two years ago. He said Democrats caused the sky-high current levels by declaring war on energy. He also stated that gas was $2 a gallon two years ago. They brought it to six and now want to celebrate when it comes down to five. Mark Kelly countered, saying, When the Biden administration refused to increase oil and gas production, I told him he was wrong. Masters also cited the printing of trillions of dollars in stimulus packages by Democrats as an obvious cause of the current inflation woes. On immigration, Masters had this to say. Call me old-fashioned, but I think the correct amount of illegal immigration is zero. The problem is that Joe Biden and Mark Kelly are willfully 
ignoring federal law. They've surrendered our southern border. They've given it up to the Mexican drug cartels. Approximately 84 illegal aliens were rescued from the back of a tractor trailer by Texas authorities yesterday. Officials say it may have been a human smuggling incident. Kelly sought to paint himself as an independent Democrat. He says he pushed back on the administration multiple times on the border. He also stated he got more funding on the ground to increase Border Patrol staffing and technology. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The second biggest county in Texas is voting for its county judge. One of the candidates is coming under fire for allegedly paying someone to tamper with a 2016 election. Here's that story. The race for county judge in the second biggest county in Texas was rocked last month. Allegations of past fraudulent ballot harvesting surfaced against Democrat nominee Deborah Peoples. Footage from a body cam worn by a Fort Worth police officer in 2020 shows a man saying that Peoples allegedly paid him $200 for every fraudulent absentee ballot he could deliver in the months before the 2016 presidential election. At that time, Peoples was chairperson of the Tarrant County Democrat Party. Uh, one day I got like, one day I got like $1,200. One day. $1,200? Yeah, like four hours. And they give you push to go ahead, you know. The man in the video, Charles Jackson, was reportedly arrested when officials found out about him submitting fraudulent ballots. He says he was quickly bailed out of jail by a person he knew to be closely affiliated with Peoples. Jackson made further allegations about Peoples. You know, in that office, they haven't lost a vote in 11 years. Whose office? In uh, their people's office. Oh, really? Every time somebody, they campaign, they win. 11 years, 11 years. And turned out they've been still about it. Jackson says his job was to visit elderly people and deceive them into signing absentee ballot documents that he misrepresented as county election forms used to certify that their personal data was correct. He then filled them out and turned them in for cash. So who would actually give you the cash? Stuart. Deborah gave me cash too. Stuart gave me cash. Ruben gave me cash. Uh -huh. Then they gave me uh, bonuses and they bought me a spree, a moped. Last week, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram quoted Peoples commenting on the issue criticizing the Gateway pundit who received the body cam footage. She says Republicans were disrespecting voters by leaning on false information from an outlet famous for spreading lies to serve an extreme agenda. NTD reached out to Peoples' office for further comments but didn't hear back before broadcast. It is not clear yet if the allegations against Peoples will be investigated. A county in Northern Virginia has stopped using election software by Connect Corporation. The move follows arrest of the company's CEO, Eugene Yu, earlier this week. His arrest is part of an investigation into suspected personal data theft of Los Angeles County election workers. Connect won a five-year contract with Los Angeles County in 2020. The L.A. District Attorney's Office said it stored election workers' data on servers in China. The office is now seeking Yu's extradition to Los Angeles. Connect's election worker management system is designed to assist with poll worker assignments, communications, and payroll. The Epic Times received a statement saying that after learning about the arrest, Fairfax County in Virginia has stopped using Connect's poll chief software. The county is also ending its contract with Connect. And election officials didn't say what they'll do about the fast approaching midterm elections. Colorado voters will decide on a proposition on November 8th that promises free breakfasts and lunches for all public school children. The universal free school meals proposition would increase taxes on those making over $300,000 a year. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more. Colorado voters have shown little desire to increase taxes in the past. They even established the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights in 1992. That limits the revenue governments can retain and spend and requires voter approval for tax increases. Proponents of the free lunch proposition are hoping that voters will now show a desire to spread the wealth. Approximately 40% of all Colorado students were eligible for free school meals from 2020 to 2022. Those supporting the expansion of free meals to all students say that's not enough. They say that households making over $300,000 annually should pay for those meals. The free mail ballot proposal, Proposition FF, would raise state income tax revenue by over $100 million in 2023, its first year. Additionally, the money wouldn't be subject to Colorado's constitutional revenue limits and would be used to increase wages for employees serving school meals. 
proponents of Proposition FF argue that kids experiencing hunger have lower grades than their peers, that they are more likely to struggle with behavior problems and experience emotional, mental, and physical health issues. Opponents of the proposition argue that the measure saps money from the economy and from families investing their money as they see fit. They also say that the state should not pay to feed kids who can afford to purchase a school meal or bring food from home. Some criticize the initiative as having welfare state elements. In November 2020, Colorado voters approved a proposition covering medical events. It enables Colorado employees to take up to 12 weeks of paid family and medical leave, and they can also receive over $1,000 per week in wages. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Republican Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska will be resigning from the Senate. He will accept a position as the president of the University of Florida. Sass said that the University of Florida is uniquely positioned to lead this country through an era of disruption and that the partnership in Washington isn't going to solve workforce challenges. He also said that he is delighted to be under consideration to be president of the university. The university said it only recommended one potential president to its board of trustees, that being Senator Ben Sass. Sass previously served as president for Midland University in Nebraska. He was elected to the Senate in 2014 and was re-elected in 2020. Nebraska's Republican Governor Pete Ricketts will appoint a replacement once the senator's seat becomes vacant. As the midterm elections draw near, a state lawmaker in Wisconsin is worried that not enough has been done to prevent the upcoming election from becoming a replay of 2020. Here are the details. Wisconsin State Assemblywoman Janelle Branchen, a Republican, tells the Epic Times that she's worried about how her state conducts elections. She said, quote, going into the midterms, a person can still register, get a ballot, and vote before his or her identity and address are verified with the Wisconsin Department of Transportation as required by law. I saw this going on in the August primary. Nothing has changed since 2020. There's still no instantaneous identity check for the thousands of people utilizing Wisconsin's same-day registration law. There remains continuing opportunity for bad actors to take advantage of this and other security vulnerabilities in the balloting process. According to law, local clerks have 30 days after a state election and 45 days after a federal election to verify the ID and address of a same-day voter. In a report released last year, the Wisconsin Legislative Audit Bureau looked at this issue in the 2020 elections. They found that the identity and address information of more than 46,000 same-day voting registrants didn't match the information in the database of the Wisconsin Department of Transportation. In the case of 13,800 people, no attempt was made to match the information. The audit also found that a total of nearly 60,000 would-be voters asked to be registered and received a ballot without their names and addresses being verified with the state database until after the election, or not at all. According to the audit, nearly 960,000 people in Wisconsin registered to vote in 2020. Nearly 94% of them presented identity and address information that matched the state database. In 2020, Democratic nominee Biden defeated then-President Trump by less than 21,000 votes in Wisconsin. Branchin criticizes the state's same-day registration system. She said, quote, what good does that do? By that time, the election is already over, and there is no way to take a potentially illegal vote back or to link the ballot with the unqualified voter who cast it. Wisconsin Election Commission officials didn't respond to a request from the Epic Times for comment. Former President Trump says the media should prove that his allegations about the 2020 presidential election being rigged are false. Trump sued CNN for defamation earlier this week. Well, with uh, CNN, it's just like incredible. They just say anything. You know probably better than anybody, John. They'll say whatever comes to mind. They talk about the big lie. I said, well, prove the big lie. The big lie is not a big lie at all. It's the opposite. CNN termed Trump's allegations about election fraud a big lie, a term that Trump claimed was coined by anchors to malign his reputation. Trump spoke on Real America's Voice about actions he's taking. He said, quote, all the stats, we have everything. Unfortunately, we haven't had judges that want to look at it. They don't want to change elections. The former president filed a lawsuit against CNN on Monday, alleging defamation and seeking $475 million in punitive damages. The lawsuit accuses CNN of trying to use its influence to defame Trump, quote, for the purpose of defeating him politically. Trump's lawyers say CNN claiming credit for Trump leaving office in the 2020 presidential election. They also said the libel and slander against Trump has only escalated in recent months because CNN fears Trump's presidential campaign for 2024. 
And coming up, Hunter Biden could be in some new hot water. Leaks suggest the FBI has gathered substantial evidence against him. Find out what charges are being considered just after this break. On top of road destruction and displacement, a new challenge has emerged in the wake of Hurricane Ian. An official reported that a large number of electric vehicles waterlogged by the storm have burst into flames. Florida State Fire Marshal Jimmy Petronas struck a warning note on Twitter. He said a ton of electric vehicle batteries were corroded by the storm, thus prompting fires. He called the issue a challenge that firefighters had never faced before. In one of the videos he shared, firefighters were trying to put out a fire on a roadside electric car. A female voice was heard saying the car was still smoking after being doused with 1,500 gallons of water. Another voice said the smoke might last for a few more days. Florida has the second highest number of registered electric vehicles in the country, trailing only California. These cars catch fire less frequently than gasoline vehicles, but their lithium-ion batteries make the fire harder to put out once it occurs. President Biden is trying to link Hurricane Ian to climate change. This is despite a warning against it coming from the nation's top hurricane expert. Here are the details. President Biden on Wednesday surveyed the devastation of Hurricane Ian in Fort Myers Beach, Florida. And during his speech, Biden linked Hurricane Ian to other disaster sites he's visited in the past couple of months. More fires have burned in the west and the southwest, burned everything right to the ground than the, the entire state of New Jersey, the, the, as much room as that takes up. And the reservoirs out west are, are, are down to almost zero. We're in a situation where the Colorado River looks more like a stream. There's a lot going on. And I think the one thing this has finally ended is a discussion about whether or not there's climate change and we should do something about it. But the Biden administration's top hurricane expert has rebuked such claims due to lack of evidence. Here's what Jamie Rome, the acting director of the National Hurricane Center, told CNN host Don Lemon in an interview on September 27th before Ian made landfall. What effect does climate change have on this phenomenon that that is happening now because it seems these storms are intensifying that's the question i don't think you can link climate change to any one event on the whole on the cumulative uh, climate change uh, may be making storms worse uh, but uh, to link it to any one event um, i I would caution against that okay well listen i grew up there and these storms are intensifying something is causing them to intensify The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, a federal agency overseeing the National Hurricane Center, recently released a study with similar conclusions. They said, quote, it is premature to conclude with high confidence that human-caused increases in greenhouse gases have caused a change in past Atlantic Basin hurricane activity that is outside the range of natural variability. The agency went on to say, after adjusting for a likely undercount of hurricanes in the pre-satellite era, there is essentially no long-term trend in hurricane counts. There are new allegations coming to light on President Biden's son, Hunter. It's possible he could be charged with tax-related crimes, as well as for making false statements to buy a firearm. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the charges being considered. According to the Washington Post, the FBI has been investigating the president's son, Hunter Biden, since 2018. They reported federal investigations first focused on his consulting work and business dealings overseas. But now sources say the probe is centered around if he correctly reported his income and for allegedly answering no on a gun purchase form to a question about being addicted to or using illegal drugs. The sources spoke on the condition of anonymity because the case is ongoing. They say after months of gathering evidence, it's enough to press charges. Hunter Biden said in 2020 that his tax affairs were being investigated, but that he handled them legally and appropriately. He paid off a tax bill of about $2 million shortly after that announcement. Hunter says in his recent book, Beautiful Things, a memoir, that he's battled with drug and alcohol addiction for years. That was around the same time he bought the gun. He was discharged from the Navy when he tested positive for cocaine in 2014. Making false statements on a gun purchase form is a felony. In an interview with Fox News, his lawyer Chris Clark noted it's a felony for a federal agent to leak information about an ongoing grand jury investigation. He says they expect the Justice Department to investigate and prosecute whoever leaked the information, and that prosecutors should not be pressured, rushed, or criticized for doing their job. 
Clark claims he's not been contacted by any federal investigative agents and that his client is being targeted because of his family name. The final decision is now up to the Delaware U.S. Attorney if charges are filed or not. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Internal documents from the Justice Department obtained from the FBI whistleblowers show that at least 44 high-level FBI officials either resigned or retired after sexual misconduct charges. Senator Chuck Grassley said that those 44 officials left the FBI before they could face penalties. In one additional case, a recommendation for penalty was issued before the resignation, but it is unknown if the penalty was carried out. These 45 former FBI members were all in the federal government's senior executive service. Over 650 total FBI employees were confirmed by investigators to have committed sexual misconduct while on the job between 2004 and 2020. That review was prompted by a December 2020 Associated Press story that found sexual misconduct cases among the FBI's executive ranks. After the review, FBI Director Christopher Wray issued a zero-tolerance memo to agents regarding sexual misconduct on or off-duty. The documents provided by whistleblowers to Grassley indicate that the FBI has failed to implement Wray's policy effectively since it was announced nearly two years ago. The Supreme Court has agreed to hear two cases about Twitter and YouTube. They are about the extent to which social media platforms may be held responsible when terrorist groups use the platforms to promote their causes. Federal law generally prevents Internet platforms and Internet service providers from being held liable for what users say on them. YouTube and Twitter say they shouldn't be held responsible if terrorists use their websites. In one of the cases, the plaintiffs claim that YouTube was aiding ISIS recruitment efforts by using algorithms to steer users to ISIS videos. They say this makes YouTube liable under the Anti-Terrorism Act. In the other case, Twitter argues it shouldn't be held responsible for acts of international terrorism if ISIS used its platforms. Both cases involve families of victims of ISIS terrorist attacks. More pain in Uvalde, a woman who was hired as a police officer for the school district this summer was fired yesterday after it was revealed she was at Robb Elementary School the day of the deadly shooting. You can see her here. She was a Texas Department of Public Safety officer then and one of the first officers at the school. She quit not long after the shooting, but she and six other DPS officers are being investigated for what they did or did not do the day of the attack. Their names haven't been released. A timeline from body camera footage shows she arrived on scene just two minutes after the shooting began, and new information indicates she was among several DPS officers on scene who could have taken action to stop the gunman. It's unclear if the school district was aware of the investigation when she was hired, but in a statement, the district said it was, quote, deeply distressed by the information that was disclosed, promising a review of the school's police department. A high school tradition gone wrong. An annual homecoming bonfire exploded Wednesday in Lynn Haven, Florida. In the video, you can see a deputy with the Bay County Sheriff's Office light the fire, then a loud boom and explosion. No one was injured. The fire department was on site and students were a safe distance behind a fence. The bonfire has been a tradition at A. Crawford Mosley High School for at least 50 years. It's always been conducted with law enforcement. The Bay County Sheriff's Office doesn't know what caused the explosion, but is taking responsibility for it. The school district says any bonfire or similar event is now prohibited on any campus going forward. Rite Aid could put all store items in New York City stores behind glass cases. The company says it's losing money due to thefts. The company's chief retail officer says that the current state of things, especially in New York City, leaves the company unable to prevent theft. In addition to keeping all items behind cases, Rite Aid is considering operating pharmacy-only stores in some locations. They're also closing over 60 locations across the U.S. The company closed locations in two Manhattan neighborhoods earlier this year. Store sources told a New York Post reporter that thieves have stolen over $200,000 in items over two months at one of their locations. Actor Michael Rappaport witnessed and recorded alleged theft at one location. Video shows the alleged thief walking past store security holding bags of stolen merchandise. The U.S. is preparing for a nuclear emergency. The Department of Health and Human Services is buying $290 million worth of a drug that helps with radiation. It's called N-Plate. It was approved by the FDA in January 2021 to treat blood cell injuries from radiation sickness. 
The radiation sickness can reach internal organs in mere seconds when a person is exposed to a high dose of penetrating radiation. It can make it difficult for blood to clot, which leads to life-threatening, uncontrolled bleeding. N-plate helps reduce the bleeding by simulating the body to produce more blood cells. N-plate is also FDA-approved for people with a blood disorder that results in thin blood. People coming to the United States from Uganda are going to be checked for Ebola starting this weekend. According to a statement from the U.S. Embassy in Uganda, these people will be routed to five U.S. cities, including New York and Atlanta, for a screening. There are 44 confirmed cases of Ebola in Uganda, according to the World Health Organization. Officials say there are no current cases of Ebola in the U.S., and the risk of the disease spreading in the country is considered minimal. Ebola is rare, but it can be fatal, and there is no cure for it. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says someone with Ebola can have a fever, muscle and joint pain, and unexpected bleeding. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Still to come, the United Nations human rights body rejects debate on allegations of Beijing's abuses in Xinjiang. The vote results surprise many. And Russia-installed official in Ukraine has harsh words for Russia's defense minister over the war. It's a rare rebuke for a Russian military official. We'll have the details soon when we return. Human rights in China and the repression of Uyghurs in Xinjiang province. The UN human rights body declined to debate the issue. Here's more on that. In a rare move, the UN Rights Council on Thursday voted down a motion to hold a debate about alleged human rights abuses by China against Uyghurs and other Muslims in Xinjiang. Por favor, por favor. The surprise victory for Beijing was met with a burst of applause after the result was announced in the packed Geneva-based council room. The defeat is only the second time in the council's 16-year history that a motion has been rejected and is seen by observers as a setback to both the West's moral authority on human rights and the credibility of the United Nations itself. The United States, Canada and Britain were among the countries that brought the motion. U.S. Ambassador Michelle Taylor and U.K. Ambassador Simon Manley both defended the need for scrutiny. No country represented here today has a perfect human rights record. No country, no matter how powerful, should be excluded from council discussions. This includes my country, the United States, and it includes the People's Republic of China. We are here to discuss the most serious human rights violations and abuses wherever and by whomever they are committed. There can be no doubt about the gravity and the scale of what has been reported in Xinjiang warrants such a debate. The UN Rights Office on August 31st released a long-delayed report that found serious human rights violations in Xinjiang that may constitute crimes against humanity, ramping up pressure on China. But China's envoy had warned before the vote that the motion would create a precedent for examining other countries' human rights records. The motion is the first time the rights record of China, a powerful permanent Security Council member, has been on the agenda of the Human Rights Council. Rights groups accuse Beijing of abuses against Uyghurs, a mainly Muslim ethnic minority that numbers around 10 million in the western region of Xinjiang, including the mass use of forced labor in internment camps. The United States has accused China of genocide, Beijing denies any abuses. Mandarin is becoming the default language for Chinese courses in many countries, but traditionally Cantonese was the more popular choice. Efforts are now underway to preserve this dialect and the culture behind it. Let's take a look. More than 80 million people worldwide speak Cantonese, but the language has been sidelined under Beijing's push for Mandarin in mainland China. Cantonese is not a dialect of Mandarin. Some people think that way. They have their unique history, their unique uh, development. Professor Sigli Denig, a Hong Kong native, has taught Cantonese at Stanford for more than 20 years. In 2020, the university cut funding to the school's Cantonese program while maintaining its Mandarin classes. Denig then decided to retire and founded the Cantonese Alliance of North America aiming to preserve the language and culture. 
Yeah, a lot of them you know, talk about how Cantonese connects them with their roots, with the culture, with the communities, with their parents, with their grandparents. That is very important to their own confidence and cultural identity. More than a century ago, vast groups of Southern Chinese and Hong Kongers immigrated to the U.S. for a new life. Their primary language is Cantonese, though today this dialect is declining. Some believe learning Mandarin is better for doing business in China. Which is worrying. Like uh, in the past, like, um, like people from everywhere who came to Guangzhou, Guangzhou would be able to speak Cantonese uh, uh, because of the peers, their peers would teach them. The peers would teach them Cantonese in the past. But now only Cantonese families can pass on the language to the kids. Others still want to connect with their heritage through Cantonese. In City College of San Francisco, a Cantonese class is full of young people, mostly of Chinese descent. Half of my family came over from Hong Kong. And so my dad speaks Cantonese, my family speaks Cantonese. And, you know, I never really learned it fully growing up and wanted to be able to have conversations with my grandma. Most students are professionals, from medical practitioners to lawyers to real estate agents. Non-Chinese also speak to acquire the language of their Cantonese-speaking spouses. I have many doctors that come to my Cantonese class because they told me uh, they have many Cantonese-speaking patients, so they need to communicate with the patients. And then also nurses, uh, nurses are required, uh, if they can speak Cantonese, they can earn higher salary. In San Francisco, most of the 250,000 Chinese American residents speak Cantonese. Their language is still passed down, at least among family members. A luxury yacht of a sanctioned Russian oligarch was spotted today. It was docked near Hong Kong's iconic Victoria Harbor. The half a billion dollar vessel was flying a Russian flag. The yacht has six decks and a helipad. It came to Hong Kong after a week-long voyage from Russia. The oligarch is among a number of Russian officials sanctioned by the European Union and the United States after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The sanctions reference their links to President Vladimir Putin. Italian police seized another luxury yacht owned by the same oligarch in March. A number of Russian-owned superyachts were recently moved to parts of the world considered beyond the reach of Western sanctions. These include Turkey, parts of Asia, and the Caribbean. A Russia-installed official in Ukraine has a suggestion for President Vladimir Putin's defense minister. He said on Thursday that the defense chief should consider killing himself out of shame for the defeats in the Ukraine war. In Ukraine's Zaporizhia, rescuers picked apart rubble after missiles rained down in the early hours. Ukrainian officials said at least seven people died. Zaporizhia, in an area which Russia says it has annexed, has been hit by shelling for which Moscow and Kiev have blamed each other. But after seven months of war, Russian forces have suffered a series of recent setbacks. That prompted a rare rebuke to Moscow's top leadership from a loyalist in a Russian-occupied area. Russian-installed deputy head of annexed Kherson, Kirill Stremosov, publicly said Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu should shoot himself due to the shame of defeats. He said generals and ministers were failing to understand problems on the front lines. Such a public insult to Russia's military officials is rare. Kiev says its forces are swiftly recapturing territory in the south. President Vladimir Putin has previously said he was not bluffing over his willingness to resort to nuclear weapons. U.S. President Biden said that the nuclear threat was as severe as the Cuban Missile Crisis. Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova said Moscow was fully committed to avoiding nuclear war. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has accused Russia of nuclear blackmail over Europe's largest nuclear plant in Zaporizhia. Russian President Vladimir Putin signed a decree on Wednesday to take full control of it. Russia captured the power plant in March, but Ukrainian staff have continued to operate it. Two Russians landed on Alaska's St. Lawrence Island earlier in the week. We now know they were seeking asylum. They crossed the Bering Strait to avoid Russia's mobilization in its war against Ukraine. 
Alaskan Senator Lisa Murkowski says, quote, the Russian nationals reported that they fled one of the coastal communities on the east coast of Russia to avoid compulsory military service. Authorities transported the pair to Anchorage. They were then vetted and processed in accordance with U.S. immigration laws. The Russian embassy in Washington said its diplomats planned to call the two men. Putin's draft has prompted an exodus of Russian men out of the country, creating long lines of cars at the border into neighboring Finland, Georgia, and Mongolia. The mobilization announcement also prompted anti-war protests across Russia. The state responded by drafting some of the protesters. And just ahead, the International Monetary Fund downgrades its global economic outlook for the fourth time this year. They say all of the world's largest economies are slowing down. And UK Prime Minister Liz Truss attended the European Political Community Summit in Prague and had meetings with European leaders. Energy and migration were discussed. Find out more in just a minute right here on NTD News. Welcome back. The International Monetary Fund will downgrade its forecast for global growth in 2023 next week. Risks of recession and financial instability are contributing to the downgrade. Here are the details. Our world economy is like ship in choppy waters. The head of the International Monetary Fund warned that the outlook for the world economy was darkening, prompting the IMF to lower its global growth forecast for 2023 for the fourth time this year. Speaking at Georgetown University Thursday, IMF Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva cited shockwaves caused by the global health crisis, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and climate disasters as signs that the global economy could get much worse, and that as a result, the IMF would downgrade its current 2.9% global growth projection when it releases its World Economic Outlook next week. She added that all the world's largest economies, Europe, China, and the United States, were now slowing down, which was dampening demand for exports from emerging and developing countries already hit hard by high food and energy prices. The war in Ukraine and global economic risks will dominate next week's annual meetings of the IMF and the World Bank in Washington, which bring together finance ministers and central bankers from around the world. Overall, the IMF expects global output to shrink by $4 trillion between now and 2026. That is roughly the size of the German economy and amounts to what Georgieva called a massive setback. Steady the ship. Liz Truss was in Prague for the first summit of the European political community. She also had a series of bilateral meetings with European leaders discussing issues such as energy and migration. Here's more. Prime Minister Liz Truss attended the European Political Community Summit in Prague on Thursday. She had a working lunch with the Prime Minister of the Czech Republic, Pietr Fiala. They discussed opportunities for future collaboration on securing long-term energy supplies. Truss also had meetings with French President Emmanuel Macron, as well as Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte. The meetings focused on migration and how to disrupt people trafficking gangs. Ruto welcomed Truss's attendance. Well, I really want to uh, compliment uh, this Truss for that British leadership. And of course, there are many issues to discuss. And bilaterally, we have an excellent relationship with the Netherlands and the United Kingdom. Uh, but also, the relationship between the UK and EU will be on the agenda. A brainchild of French President Emmanuel Macron, the European political community brings together the 27 member states of the European Union and 17 other countries, including several waiting to join the bloc as well as the UK and Turkey. Truss's decision to attend could facilitate a reset of ties between Brussels and London, which have been frayed by post-Brexit wrangling over Northern Ireland. The leaders discussed shared security and energy problems stemming from Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. The host of the summit, Czech Prime Minister Pietr Fiala, said at the opening that the point is to have an honest discussion on matters of common interest and on disputed topics. Many of you have the similar experiences in the history of your countries. We understand it is tough to face evil, but we also understand that truth does win. 
I can, it can take time, but in the end, we all know in our hearts that Ukraine will win because the truth is on their side. Truss, still a new figure on the international stage, appeared relaxed. She stood alongside fellow leaders chatting with them as they got ready for the so-called family photo. Coming up, a California woman claims the title at the Women's Ironman World Championship. This is the first American champion at the event in 25 years. Get the full story on NTD News Today. One of the Smithsonian Museums in Washington, D.C. is getting ready to show its new makeover to the public. The Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, along with the National Mall, is expected to allow the public through its famous doors once again starting next week. The museum has been undergoing a seven-year restoration and now features hundreds of new artifacts, 23 redesigned exhibits, and eight new and renovated galleries. The museum is slated to reopen to the public on October 14th, but it will be a partial reopening. The entire renovation project should be completed in 2025. Halloween is right around the corner, and ahead of that sugary-filled holiday, CandyStore.com has an interactive map of all 50 states' favorite Halloween candies. In Texas, the favorites were Starbursts, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, and Sour Patch Kids. Californians favored Reese's Cups, M&Ms, and Skittles. You can scroll over the CandyScore.com map to find the favorite in your state. Nationwide, the most popular Halloween candy was Reese's Cups, followed by Skittles in second place, and M&Ms taking third. Starbucks and Hot Tamales rounded out top five, followed by Sour Patch Kids, Hershey's Kisses, Snickers, Tootsie Pops, and Candy Corn. CandyStore.com used 15 years of sales data to compile the list. The National Retail Federation estimates U.S. consumers will shell out about $3.1 billion in Halloween candy this year. And now over to Mexico, flower growers are coming together in Mexico City for the Fall Flower Festival. It is taking place on the capital city's main boulevard. More than 120 flower growers from Mexico City displayed a wide variety of seasonal plants. Citizens from the capital had the chance to learn about the variety of species and the conservation efforts by local flower growers. The Mexico City Commission of Natural Resources and Rural Development, in collaboration with the capital's Ministry of Tourism, organized the event. This is part of the Mexico City Mayor's strategy to promote sustainable products that could benefit rural communities. The flowers will be on display until Sunday, October 9th. Better nutrition, a cleaner environment, and soil health are fueling the growing demand for meat from pasture-raised animals. Let's take a look at some of the other benefits. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. When you buy beef, if you have visions of cows grazing on pasture, it's time for a reality check. Most cattle in the United States are fattened on grain and soy. They live in confined conditions in feedlots or factory farms until they reach market rate. This practice has only occurred in the past 70 years or so. It also destroys healthy soil, pollutes the environment and makes the meat less nutritious. More people are learning the importance of choosing meat from animals raised on pasture. The demand for and sales of 100% grass-fed and grass-finished meat has risen. In the United States, retail sales of pasture-finished beef rose from 17 million in 2012 to 272 million in 2016. And according to recent research, the market for grass-fed beef is predicted to grow even higher, by 14.5 billion between 2020 and 2024. Beef from 100% grass-fed beef, bison, sheep, lamb and goats has less total fat and fewer calories. It also has more vitamin E, beta carotene and vitamin C than feedlot meat. But trying to find 100% grass-fed and grass-finished meat isn't easy. And that's because grass-fed on packages isn't regulated and can mean several different things. The term can mean that animals were fed grass pellets in a feedlot type operation. It can also mean that they had grazed on just one type of grass instead of raised on pasture with access to different grasses and shrubs. The variety that animals eat provides many of the outstanding nutritional benefits in grass-fed meat. 
Also, what type of feed they're finished on makes a big difference in nutritional benefits. Since the claim grass-fed can mean different things, what should you look for when you shop? If you want meat products from animals that were never confined in feedlots, were 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and weren't treated with hormones or antibiotics, you are going to want to look for the American grass-fed seal. Chelsea Sodaro of Davis, California took the crown at the recent Ironman Women's World Championship. This makes her the first rookie to win the event in 15 years and the first American champion in 25 years. After a three-year hiatus, the women-only professional competition made its comeback in a small Hawaiian town. Around 2,500 athletes participated, among them 34-year-old Sodaro, who had just given birth to her daughter a year and a half ago. The whole game started in the aquamarine waters of Kailua Bay. A woman from the UK led the 2.4-mile swim and the 112-mile bike course, but Sodaro's dominance came in the marathon. She built her lead in the scorching sun at mile 8. The gap grew larger until she crossed the finish line, setting a total time of 8 hours and 33 minutes. Those who missed this race can still look forward to the men's pro triathlon this Saturday. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.